This is the England Rugby Game Developers Podcast. The Game Developers Podcast Series is here to support the England Rugby Developer Workforce with our training course delivery to referees, coaches and volunteers. In this series, we'll have in-depth discussions about topics related to our training courses that we hope in turn will have a positive impact on your tutoring. I'm David Fraser, Training and Workforce Development Manager at England Rugby. This is the second of two episodes of the Game Developers Podcast, where I talk to Doug Lemov. In this episode, we are discussing how we generate feedback in our course delivery. Doug is an author, a former teacher and school principal, and helped to found Uncommon Schools, a network of high-performing schools in underserved communities. His books have sold over a million copies and have been translated into a dozen languages. During the conversation, you'll hear us discuss Doug's website and his Teach Like a Champion blog. You'll find a link to it in the podcast information. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, Doug Lemov is a former teacher and school principal and helped to found Uncommon Schools, a network of high-performing schools in underserved communities. He's the author of a number of books, including Teach Like a Champion, The Coach's Guide to Teaching, and Practice Perfect. His books have sold over a million copies and have been translated into a dozen languages. And he describes himself as the worst soccer player of the decade at his college. There is much about Doug's messaging that resonates with how we deliver England rugby training courses and lots to learn about how we, as course designers and tutors, can be more effective in how we support coaches, referees and other volunteers to learn. I'm delighted that Doug has joined us again. And we're going to focus this conversation on how we can best support learners to generate feedback on our coaching and refereeing courses. So, Doug, welcome again. David, good to see you. Thanks for having me back. Uh, It might be helpful first to set the context in which we help our learners generate feedback on our courses. On courses, we give the learners opportunities to practice their refereeing and coaching. We set them tasks that they'll deliver. Then we'll run individual and group feedback opportunities where we ask a series of questions designed to help them generate their own feedback. This feedback inputs into an ongoing action plan that each learner maintains through their learning journey. There are some very specific areas of our training that relate to player safety, such as coaching and refereeing the scrum and the tackle, where we need learners to understand explicitly what they've done well and what they need to keep doing, and as importantly, what they need to do better. Uh, I came across the idea of thinking, participating ratio questioning as part of the generating feedback process in your book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching, and on your Teach Like a Champion blog. And I'd like to discuss this, but first, could we discuss using a question questioning-based approach? Um, so, so the first question really, Doug, is, is there value in setting the expectation with learners that you'll be using questions? So, for example... I'm going to be asking questions throughout the session just to check for understanding. Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. I think there it's incredibly important. And I think that there are really three reasons why questions are so important. And the first one is it, it creates a climate of attentiveness and attention. There's a recent study that came out this year of students in the Czech Republic. And what the researchers did in this study was they, um, they took a sample of highly motivated students who never spoke in class. 
and they compared them, compared their outcomes to students who spoke frequently in class of, uh, of all different levels. And what they found was that even, even controlling for motivation, there was a gap in performance between the students who never spoke and the students who did speak. That one of the things you have to do to learn effectively is you have to feel actively engaged. You have to produce some version of the content. You have to talk about the thing that you're talking about. You have to put it into your own words. And you have to feel like you could be required to participate in the conversation at any time. That just, just being motivated but being silent is not sufficient to learn. And so one of the things that we do when we ask people questions is we cause them to be active participants in their learning and we shape their attention so that they're focused, they're, they're drawn into the task and that's a gift to them. And then I think, you know, the other thing about questioning is I think that there are times when it's appropriate to tell people what they should have tried or what they could have done. But for the most part, we want them, there are things we want them to understand about it. Why? Was this the right thing? You know, if I tell you that was a great move, why or what did it feel like or what caused you to do it that helps you to be able to replicate the decision making on your uh, process on your own to become an autonomous learner who does not require someone to tell you what the right decision was and so that, that's that's always our goal and then there's one more thing that i would i would throw in there which is i would just say like equity which is some people will instantly perceive themselves to be part of the conversation, part of the session that it's geared towards them. And some people will wonder whether they're relevant and they're full participants. And when we draw them in and when we ask them questions, we tell them that they're important, that their voice matters. And we also get a more dynamic session where it's not the same two or three people talking over and over again, because we've all been in that classroom where it's just, you know, the same three people answering it. So questions can harvest attention, they build autonomous learners, and they can also sort of build us an environment where um, where where everyone is part of the conversation. So, just just to dig into that a little bit more, would you encourage us to be looking for the quieter learners and specifically target questions at those? Um, yeah. Is there any danger in doing that with people who are perhaps yeah. a little nervous or about their? Um, knowledge or their position on the course so again in our context we've got some you know a lot of the time we're training adults but yeah. some of them will come to a course very nervous about their level yeah. of knowledge yeah yes and yes yes i think it's important and yes we should be careful about it and so um i think the you know one of the reasons i'm happy to have this conversation is that it's so important to think about the technique with which we engage people so one of the like one of the techniques for questioning that I talk about in my books is cold call, which is calling on someone regardless of whether they've raised their hand. And I think that this is a, this is this is an important thing. You know, if you if you think about a typical practice, you know, let's say a rugby practice where a coach is asking players questions, um, and let's say the coach never designates who's going to answer the question. You just ask them rhetorically to the bunch. You know, should we play wide here or should we? You know, sh should we? Uh, should we play centrally? What we get is a dynamic where the same two or three people share the first thought off the top of their heads. And some people think, and some people are sort of tuned out and not listening. And maybe even wondering whether they're that important to the team. And so cold calling would be just inviting, I, I like to describe it as inviting people into the conversation. And when done well, I think here's a, you know, uh, 
when done well, the research tells us that in, in classrooms where there's more cold calling, people start to volunteer more because they see themselves being successful. And if you don't, I'll just tell you a couple of like interesting stories about this that I think help get it, how to do this well. But um, uh, I have some colleagues who work with teachers in sub-Saharan Africa and a couple of the, of the places where they work are cultures where girls are sort of, are so, the, the social norm for girls is not to speak in the classroom. That you know, the boys do the talking and the girls are supposed to be more passive. And this is a norm that they would like to break. It's just, I mean, it's the girls' benefits for them to feel like they can, like, they can do school and that they're equal participants in the classroom. And so one of the most powerful things would be a teacher saying, Aisha, what do you think? Uh, and sort of breaking the norm for the student and inviting the student into the conversation. And what they found was that when they did that, that then the girls became more vocal over time because one, they saw themselves being successful, but two, the teacher was saying, you are important here. And I thought about that. Sometimes I tell the story about, um, I'm a father, I have three kids. Um, I love them deeply. And at dinner, a couple of, you know, at dinner recently, I cold called my own daughter. Um, and a lot, a lot of people laugh at that and they, um, they think that, that proves, you know, uh, what a, what a cruel and ruthless father I am. But, uh, but I'll tell you why I cold called her and how I did it. Cause I think that this sort of gets at one of the keys to the question. So I, my, my three kids, when the story takes place, or one of them is 18 and one of them is 17 and my littlest daughter is 12. And so they go to different schools. My two older kids go to what we call high school. You know, they're like basically doing A levels and my littlest ones, you know, She's in a very different school setting. So my two older kids are having a discussion about their science teachers and what they think about their labs and are they prepared. It's very, you know, it's back and forth. They have very strong opinions. And I'm just looking at my little daughter, at the, my littlest daughter at the end of the table. She's looking at them and I, and I can see that what she's thinking is like, I don't even go to a high school. Am, am, I, am I a legitimate participation in, participant in this conversation? Do you have to be 17 and, have, you know, and be taking AP chemistry to be able to participate in this conversation? And so I invited her into the conversation and I said, and I cold called her and I said, what do you think, Willa? Do you have labs in school and what, you know, and what are they like for you? And I think that that tells her of all the people in the room right now, you know, I want to hear your, your opinion matters. So I think that that's, that's one of the powers of questioning. But you also pointed out that like, this could also be a negative experience for someone. And so I think the keys to, if you want to use cold calling are one, um, I think the way that you do it is important. It should be an invitation to a real conversation. And I think one of the easiest ways to do that is by asking a question for which there can be no wrong answer, such as, what do you think? What's your opinion? What were you thinking about when we talked about that? Can you get us started talking about X, right? I think that's, that's one of my favorite phrases because it almost implies to the person who's answering, I don't expect you to be perfect. And when I ask someone else to build off of what you said, it's, I intended to do that all along because I didn't expect a full and complete answer. The second thing I think you can do to help people be successful and feel supported and, and cared about when you cold call them is to give them time to prepare. So I might say something like, I'm going to show you a video of a referee in action, and then I'm going to ask you what you think the most effective thing that he did and one thing you would change about his execution. So then I show the video and I say, great. 30 seconds, turn and talk with your partner, what's effective here and what's ineffective, go, right? And so then like anyone who I cold call now 
is going to be someone who's had a chance to talk through their ideas and hear someone else's idea. And I could even walk around and listen to people while they're having a conversation. I might say, great, let me pause you there. And Muhammad, would you mind starting us off there? Because you made a really interesting point about X. And that says to Muhammad when I cold call him, that I'm cold calling him because he said something valuable and he had a useful insight. Um, and so that makes that makes the cold call feel even more, even more positive. Or I could, the first couple of times I cold call, I could say, great, I'll give you 30 seconds to turn and talk about the video. And after you've had 30 seconds, when we come back, I'll ask Kevin to start us off with his, with his first thoughts. And now Kevin, when he's talking to his partner, he knows that he's going to, that he's going to be the first one to speak and he has time to prepare himself and get ready. And people are much more successful when we give them time to prepare. And I could even do that by, um, by let's say I model, uh, you know, something for someone and say, watch my model. And then I'm going to ask you to tell me some things that you think are effective about it, but don't answer right away. I'll give you 10 seconds to think about it. Right. Uh, so I might model say, pause, take, take a few seconds to think. And in five seconds, I'll ask David to get us started. Right. And that just gives you time to get your, your thoughts together and prepare yourself so that you, um, so that you can participate productively. Actually talked about this with, I, I work with, um, one of my clients is a premier league manager and he was using this idea of cold calling. And I think, you know, he did a pretty good job of it, but sometimes he will cold call the players so fast. The players really loved this manager and they really wanted to please him. And sometimes the cold calls would come so fast that I don't think they had time to get their thoughts together. And I think they were a little bit disappointed with the answers that they gave because they wanted to be great team members and show him how much they appreciated his work. So, uh, so one of the things we talked about was just slowing down a little bit and getting and saying, I'll give you a few seconds to think, and then I'll ask Caleb to give us his first thought or to tell us what he's thinking, right? Or something like that. There's often a fear as a, as a tutor or on a course or a teacher in a classroom of the silence that exists between asking the question and receiving the answer. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think, would you agree you have to just be confident enough to, um, you know, enjoy that silence and allow that silence because it's thinking time? Yes. I love your phrase, which is enjoy it. it it's not just that it's not a bad thing. It's that it's, it's a good thing. So often we send the signal that it's a race, right? We take the, we send the signal that it's a race, right? The person who answers is the first person to verbalize. And so what I know is that if I want to speak, I have to be one of the, I have, to, I have to be faster than everybody else. And so my incentive is not to share my best thinking and to slow down and think carefully. It's to give me, give you my first impulsive thought. And then so the, the quality of our discussion is going to be less effective. And some group of, some group of the people in the room will realize that they're never going to be faster than James. And so they're going to stop trying. So just being able to slow it down and say, take a few seconds to think, you know, don't answer. I'll give you a few seconds to think before I take any answers. Don't raise your hand quite yet. I'll show you the model again, watch it again. Great. Now tell me your thoughts, you know, just have a, just socializing people to slow down giving them a few seconds to think and telling them that it's not a race increases the quality of the answers that we get dramatically. And interestingly, it ends up saving you time, I think, in the long run, because you don't have a lot of low value answers that you have to process and validate in order to get to better thinking. You start with better ideas because you've given people more time to think. And that's a great point. Yeah. Um, 
In the coach's guide to teaching, mm-hmm. you you reference some different types of questions that, yeah. that can help help to generate feedback. Could you tell us a little bit more about those and, and how they're effective? Yeah, and maybe I'll, I'll just focus on three of them that I think are important and maybe two that are important to distinguish and one that I think is a really valuable form of question that sometimes gets overlooked. So I think that sometimes people equate questioning with discovery. Uh, you know, think about it as discovery learning. And so there are discovery questions and I would describe a, a discovery question as like a, how can I solve this problem question? And that's a useful question to ask, right? What can we do? What can we do to, um, uh, to play around the defense in the way that they're playing now? So good question, but not the only form of good question and sometimes not applicable because sometimes we have a game model. <laughs> there's sometimes there's a way that we want to play and the manager has like has installed that form. We've said that we want to play this way, that we want to play wide in this situation. So I would say like an application question is a question about how do I execute a given answer? So my goal is not to say we want to um, increase our spacing and play wide. That's the, I might say something like, we know that we want to increase our spacing and play wide. But what's what's difficult about it here? And what do we have to do to overcome the difficulties, right? And that's more of like an application question. And in many ways, I think that's like the most important question in sport because there are times when we don't know how to solve a problem, but many times we know how to solve a problem. It's just difficult because the defense is challenging us and they're creating problems for us and thing and this our shape is not what we expected it to be. And so a rut working together to get to the solution that we want under complex and difficult circumstances is really productive. And so I really like this idea of application questions, which is we know what we want to do here. Why is it hard? How's it challenging? What do we have to do to make it happen as opposed, as opposed to what do we want to do here? Um, Cause oftentimes, oftentimes there's a right answer. And oftentimes, you know, the players know the game. I talked about this with a, um, uh, a rugby coach that I worked with at, at, at a national team level you know, the guys understood the game model. And so it'd say, what do we want to do here? And they would say, we want, you know, this, we want to make sure that we're, you know, we're firing off the rock. Um, and in some ways that like that, they had answered that question so many times that it was like automatic to them. And the question is, you know, what will Ireland do to keep us from, to prevent us from doing that? And how should we be prepared to attack that? Or what's, what, what made it difficult in this situation Right, that those more analytical applied questions, I think, are really the, the most important questions in sports sometimes. And then the third type of question that I think is just important to be attentive to is what I call a perception-based question, which is um, oftentimes when we talk to players about the decision they made, what should we do here and why? And I think the hidden story of sport is that you can't make decisions about things that you don't perceive. And in order to perceive something, you have to be looking in the looking at the right things, and you have to understand what the cues are. And so one of the powerful things about questioning, I think, is it's an opportunity to direct players' eyes to the things that will help them to understand what they should do. So a great question, instead of what should we do here, I think a great question is often, what do you see here? Or what do you notice? Or what should you be looking for? So I give all of my examples in football because I speak football better than I speak rugby. So I'll give you a football example in uh, in hopes that people will understand. But let's say, um, you know, I was a center back. I think I mentioned possibly the worst center back in the, in the history of, uh, of, of football, but, um, 
my understanding of being a center back is that when that when when you're marking your man and the opposition has space in the midfield, you want to drop off so you don't get uh, so that they kept playing behind you. But when there's pressure on the ball, you want to be tighter to your man. So let's say I'm coaching my team and Caleb is my center back and he is, um, the ball comes through the midfield. There's no pressure on the ball, but he doesn't drop off his mat. Right. I could say, Caleb, what should we do here? Right. Um, but I think the really interesting question would be, Caleb, what do you see? What do you notice right now? Or what do you notice about the ball and about, about the ball and the, about the ball's progression through the midfield? Because there are really two options. One is Caleb says there's no pressure on the ball. So then I know he's looking at the right things and I can be like, then I can just reinforce great and what should you do about it? Right. And what should, and what should you, what should it look like when you drop? Right. But it also could be that Caleb tells me a bunch of true, but less important things or random things. People aren't hustling. We're out of position. Our shape is bad. And that tells me that he doesn't really know what he should be looking for here. And so now my goal is to guide his eyes and be like, yes, that's true. But the thing you should be looking for is pressure on the ball. Pressure on the ball is what tells you how to position yourself. Now I'm, I'm orienting him to a visual cue. And I think what's so powerful about that is that in the end, we need players, you know, rugby is a decision-making game. It's a player's game. Players have to make decisions autonomously. And the way that they do that is not from coaches telling them what to do, but from reading visual cues on the field. So I'm, I'm teaching them really to make sustainable decisions by knowing what to look, knowing where their eyes should go and what they should see when it's there to make their decisions. So I think this idea of perception-based questions, what should you look for? What should you see? Where are you looking? What are the cues that will tell you are profoundly important and, and maybe easy to overlook? So if I, if I try and share a rugby example, perhaps you could tell me if this, um, <clears throat> this ma matches the example you've just given. So in, in the context of training a referee to coach the scrum, you know, <clears throat> like you said earlier, so, much, so many things to look at. Uh, you, you might say to the referee, what do you see about the height of that prop or what do you see about the prop's uh, angle uh, after the engagement in the scrum? So we're asking them to look at something specific to, to try and gain an understanding of if they un if they recognise those core concepts which, which would help them to referee effectively. I think that's right. So I would, uh, there are a variety of ways that I could do that. And just to connect this to something we talked about in the previous episode, I might start by directing them to specific things like, what do you notice about the position of the, what do you notice about the positions of the props? Or what should you see? Uh, you know, uh, what about the positions of the props would tell you, um, you know, whether you want to make, whether you want, whether, the, uh, yeah. whether there was a, whether there was a penalty here or not. And then maybe later I might be even less directive and just say, pause, what do you notice about the rock right now? Right. Where there's just, there's something wrong and I don't want to, I want, I want him to practice recognizing what the visual cue is. Yeah. And then maybe if he doesn't get it, I would say, then I would guide his attention. Yeah. Interesting observation, but look at the props. That's the, the first thing we want to look at when we look at the rock is we want to look at the position of, of the, of the, you know, of the props entering the rock. What do you notice now? Um, or I might even tell him the key, if I feel like he's really confused, you know, um, I might tell him the visual cue that he should be looking for first. So I'm trying to build knowledge about visual signals that shape decisions. Great. Thanks. Thanks very much for that, Doug. Uh, so at the start, I referenced the thinking participating ratio <sighs> concept. 
could you tell us what it is and how it applies to helping people learn, please? Yeah, so ra- ratio is um, is a really important concept that I talk about with coaches and teachers alike. And the idea is that really good questions are important for learning. But the best question in the world is only so useful if only one person answers it or if nobody answers it. And this actually happens a lot in learning environments, which is a coach will ask a question uh, and they'll get crickets, which is nobody responds. Um, And so then sometimes the coach will respond by making the question easier. In fact, a question where it's like the answer is obvious because he thinks players don't understand. Uh, And now there's even even less of an, an, an incentive to answer. And so ratio is the idea that when I ask a question, One, I want the question to be a worthy question that requires thinking and is not simplistic. And two, I want to cause everyone in the room to answer the question as opposed to the same one or two people over and over. And so you could imagine this as sort of like a a two by two matrix where there's like high or low participation ratio, which is how many people are thinking about thinking deeply about the question that I just asked and how many people are looking off at the horizon and thinking about what they're going to have for dinner, et cetera. And I would always like to have everyone answering the question in their minds. And then you could imagine there's on the other side of the matrix is a higher low for like, what is the quality of the question? Is it a simplistic question? That's kind of like half embarrassing to answer because it's so obvious uh, you know, do we want to play centrally here or do we want to play wide, right? Like, I don't, we don't even know what the setting is, but we know the answer is wide because I've just tipped you off by my tone of voice <laughs> and by making it a binary question. Um, so that would be like a low think ratio question. And a high think ratio question would be something, it would be something that legitimately challenges the learner and causes them to think about the game in an important way. Like, we know that we want to play wide here. What will the defense do to try and prevent us, to try and keep us from doing that? And so ideally, I want to seek high participation ratio. Everyone is answering the question in their minds, expects to maybe answer it out loud, and high think ratio, worthy questions that challenge and honor the learners. Thanks for that. Um, when coaches and referees come to our training courses, we typically we only have a couple of hours with them to influence their practice, and then they go, they go back to their environment where they'll where they'll practice. Um, how useful would you see adopting this uh, a high thinking participating ratio approach to questioning? How useful would that be for us to adopt that to support learning in the environment I've just described? I think it's one of the single most important things, right? I think that. Um, it's really a foundational element of the learning environment. Just to go back to the study, you know, if, if people aren't if people aren't actively engaged, if their attention isn't focused, if they're not producing, if they're not if, if they're not producing a version of the knowledge that we want them to think about, they won't be learning. And you know, if you look around, if you walk by a sample of of you know youth sport training sessions, you'll notice that. Um, Sometimes the questions are good and sometimes they're not very good. But even when they're good, it's really two or three kids that are deeply engaged and it's a lot of kids just waiting for the coach to stop so they can get back to playing again. If we're going to stop to ask questions, we should make it worthwhile for everyone. You know, I think, I think, and in fact, I would say I've heard a lot of 
coaches who believe you should never stop to ask questions. And I, and I think that that's, I, I don't agree with that. But I think the reason that people do that is because they sense that the, the question asking environment is non-productive. <laughs> it's like, nobody's answering the questions. I ask the questions and they sit, you know, they weigh heavily in the air and nobody answers them. And when I do get answers, they're simplistic. And so of course I think that I should skip, I should skip asking questions. But I think the key is instead to do them quickly and efficiently and productively in an environment where everyone is kind of engaged and answers the questions and then get back to playing very quickly. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Doug. That's been a really insightful look into how we can use questions to help us uh, generate feedback. And, and particularly that point that I raised at the end there, if we're not doing it really productively on, on our courses where we only have limited time to influence those people who are then going to go and influence, you know, hundreds and thousands of players, uh, not just to be better players, but to stay in the game, then if we're not doing that, we're going to miss a massive opportunity. So that, that's been some great information there to, to help our, our workforce of, of rugby developers. So thank you very much for that. And thank you for our previous podcast on, on modeling. Uh, I mentioned, um, the coach's guide to teaching, uh, and the teach like a champion blog. Are there any other places where people can find out more about your work? Uh, yeah, the blog is the primary place where, uh, you know, right. uh, the website is teachlikeachampion.org. There's a blog there. Try and put something up every week or two, a video of a teacher, a reflection with a coach. And so that's a place to stay current. And then uh, th thanks for mentioning uh, the books. Those are available on Amazon or even better, your local bookseller. Uh, so um, uh, that's a place to dive deep if you, uh, you want to study more about the craft of teaching. Well, Doug, thanks again for your time. Uh, and thank you for listening to the Ingham Rugby Game Developers Podcast.